want you to start in your Bible in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 in a, I hope, a very familiar verse of Scripture, although uh, be ready to write if you're taking notes or really turn fast if you're going to follow me to all of the references I want to make tonight. The title of the message is Walking with God in Judgment. I've talked a lot in the last uh, number of Sunday nights about walking with God in various different ways. But when you stop and think about it, walking with God in light of judgment, of what judgment is, of what is taking place, it's really something we ought to think a lot about. Maybe we only think of judgment as, you know, there's a, there's a white throne judgment someday, there's a heaven and a hell someday. But really the subject of judgment is very big, very vast in the scriptures, a lot uh, of teaching about judgment of what goes on in our lives today and what will go on in the future, uh, how God uh, does that, both judging us and helping us. Uh, so we want to look at, uh, at some of that. In our text, this uh, very familiar text, verse 27 says, it's appointed unto man once to die, as it is appointed, so after this the judgment. In other words, we must all die. I will say in a little while, that's a judgment too, <laughs> the fact that we die. But after this, then comes even further judgment. We all must be judged. Judgment, when you think about it, is a good word. It means to decide one thing or another. It means to evaluate one thing over another. We do it all the time. You make judgments all the time. Uh, when you got up this morning, you made a judgment uh, as to whether to wear this or that. <laughs> and you chose one. You made a judgment. Uh, you make judgments like that all the time. And you make judgments about good things and bad things, about profitable and non-profitable, about wasting time and using time, about all kinds of things when you think about it in your life. And we're supposed to, in our court system, you know, the, uh, the emblem uh, is a woman with scales and they are balanced and she is blindfolded, right? so that she cannot see who is on each side. She just weighs the evidence, and wherever it comes out, that's the conclusion that should matter. Then she takes the blindfold off and sees who it is that's right and wrong. Uh, that's the way judgment should be, and that, of course, is how God does it. God doesn't need the blindfold. God sees uh, correctly all the time. So it was interesting, I... I uh, often do when I'm studying for a message, uh, open a concordance, and uh, sometimes an English concordance, sometimes a Greek concordance, but I like to use, Strong's is the English concordance I like to use, and I still use the old heavy one, <laughs> you know, I have it there at my desk, and uh, sometimes you can count the number of times a word appears in the Bible, but when I look at this, I didn't even want to start counting. It filled up uh, more than two full pages that have columns, you know, in each page. Uh, and I thought it must be four or five hundred times that the word judge or judgment or judges and so forth are mentioned in the Bible. It's a huge amount of time. The Bible is full, Old and New Testament, about judging. Now, again, there's, there's good and there's bad judgment. And uh, 
for those who do bad, they will be judged for it, but those who do good will be judged for it as well. Psalm 7, 8, and 9 says it this way, The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. It's good to have God do that. God needs to do that, and we need him to do that. And you remember when uh, Solomon got done with the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, the last two verses, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be bad. So that is coming, and we ought to be prepared for it. Now, I know that today, the day in which we live in this 21st century, uh, when uh, grandsons are still alive whose grandfathers lived in the 1700s, we don't like the word judge very much, do we? Uh, judgment to us becomes a bad word. Uh, and yet, understand, in some ways it is true that we're not to judge. The Bible tells us we're not to judge a brother's motives. You see something that a brother or sister does, you, you can't know their mind. God can. You can't know their heart. And so we don't judge the motives until we know for sure about those kinds of things. There are things that we're not supposed to judge, but on the other hand, there are many things that we are supposed to judge. We're supposed to judge right and wrong. We're supposed to judge righteousness and unrighteousness. We're, we're supposed to even judge uh, and make evaluations in the church, the Bible says. So there are many things that we are, but, but today judgment it's kind of like sin, you know, somebody who actually makes a judgment. You can be, it can be equated to hatred. You know, well, you're saying so, such and such is wrong, and we know it as Christians. When we say a certain sin or a sin that people practice is wrong, it's immediately labeled as hatred. You hate that person. And why is that? You, you understand, don't you? Or, I like the word phobic, too. You know, anything you judge and don't like, you have a phobia about, you know. But you know why that is, don't you? Because in a society that basically does not believe in God, and I don't care what the words are that come out of people's mouths, they do not believe that. And so the only authority left is you. And if the only authority left is you, then whatever you say is really all the right and the wrong that there is. If there's not a God to, to judge you, if there's not a God to oversee what you do and say, then you are the final authority. And then if somebody says, I want to do this, and somebody else says, well, you shouldn't do that, well, who are you then? to put yourself in judgment above me. We even face it as a country, you know. Uh, the whole world would like to come and live in America. And if we say, well, you know, you can't just come in, they say, but we want to. And, and if you say, I can't, then you've judged me, and that's being hateful and so forth. Or you're afraid of phobia, xenophobia or something like that. And so we live in a world like that. There's, there's no lying, uh, 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 lying about that. So 
A good person wants to be judged. Did you ever think about that? If you're a good person before God, you want to be judged. You know why? It will make you better. If right and wrong is judged in your life, and right is pointed out and wrong is pointed out, it will make you a better person. It will correct the bad things in your life, the bad habits, the bad words, the bad thoughts, whatever it may be. A person uh, that wants to be judged wants to be right. I want to be corrected. Why Why did you go to school and pay all the money you did to go to school if you didn't want your professors to correct you and say, no, you don't know this. You need to learn it this way because you wanted to be corrected so that you're a better person and you're a more profitable person. You want to be, you want to be judged because you want to see evil corrected and good rewarded, right? You want to see that happen. You want God to judge in those ways. Uh, and when we do right, we justify God's character. We who believe in God especially through Jesus Christ, want to be right so that our life is a testimony to God who is right and always right. So you want to achieve the absolute best. Now, in your bulletin, I have some things for you to follow. And again, a lot to write, but you can just listen if you would, if you would like. And uh, you'll notice that in the first two points, I, I divided into two uh, divisions. Uh, Rollin McCune, Dr. McCune, wrote a systematic theology. He was a professor that I had at one time, uh, and he was a great theologian. He said there are fundamentally two kinds of divine judgment in Scripture, the temporal and the final. Temporal judgments serve a present purpose. Final judgments serve an eternal purpose. So in other words, what he's doing and other writers do is to say, you know, you're going to be judged basically in two realms. First is the realm in which you live now. You're going to be judged in this life for a number of different things. Then secondly, when you leave this life and prepare for the next one, then you're going to be judged again at that time. Now, we could add a third one and say, our past has been judged and I'm going to come back to this, but thankfully it was judged on the cross of Calvary when Jesus Christ uh, took our sins and God uh, took the judgment of our sins and placed it upon him so that all of our past is forgiven and all of our sins uh, actually past, present, and future are forgiven. Then there's a present sanctification, if you will, or a judgment, and that is this life that we live in we, we start out as baby Christians, but we're supposed to end up as mature, grown-up Christians. We start out with kind of worldliness in ourselves and in our flesh that we put away all through our lives until we get to a place where uh, we're closer uh, to God and more like Christ. And then there's the final uh, sanctification, if you will. There will be the time throughout eternity where we will be like Christ. And everything will be done. And so there are really three stages to it. But for our purposes, we have to look at our life now and then our life after this life. And that's what we're doing. So notice that I have in, the, in this uh, uh, outline here, I have uh, various kinds of temporal judgment. And then what about temporal judgment for a Christian? And we'll think the same thing a little bit when we talk about final judgments. Well, 
within time and space, that is, in, in this life, there are various kinds. You know, God judges, first of all, individuals. There is judgment upon individuals. And so the first one, as I've already mentioned, is death. The fact is, we all die because we're under God's judgment of sin that he gave to Adam and Eve when they sinned and promised to them that not only they, but all of their posterity would die. And our text in Hebrews 9 here is saying, it's appointed, wants to die. So in Psalm 90, where Moses wrote about the fact that God commands it, he said, Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men, meaning back to the ground. The dust shall return unto the earth from whence it was. Return back to the ground. That's God's commandment to us, his judgment upon us, if you will. Well, also, you know Galatians 6-7 very well. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. God is in the business of judging individuals. The actions that you have may reap, will reap consequences. Be sure that you don't sow to the flesh because you will reap corruption. Sow to the Spirit so that you can uh, uh, reap of the Spirit life. So he judges individuals temporally. He judges nations. And in the days of Israel, of course, uh, we see it in the history of the Old Testament that here is Israel, the apple of God's eye, and God judged the nations that touched the apple of God's eye. But that doesn't mean that God is done necessarily. You know, in Revelation 15, 4, we hear the cry, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are manifest. We ought to be concerned about that as a nation. If we can say God has blessed our nation for a number of different reasons, then we will also have to say God would judge us for other reasons. And if we have changed the first reasons into the latter reasons, God may judge us for our sin and nations of the world. And then, and then also God judges the world. So in Romans, uh, in, Ro in uh, Psalm 9-8, I'm sorry, in Psalm 9-8, it says, he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in righteousness. And Romans 3, 6. How shall God then judge the world? Somebody argues with the writer of, of Romans. Well, what about this? And he says, if that's true, how is God going to judge the world? And he will judge the world. And so in temporal ways, God judges the world. We, uh, in our Sunday school lesson in our class this morning, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, there's a vision that he saw of four horns and four carpenters. And these are the four nations that Daniel saw, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, the four horns. And the four carpenters are Persia, Greece, Rome, and then Christ. In other words, there's a horn and it was Babylon, but you know who's going to carve away the horn? Persia is. Persia becomes the next horn, and you know who's going to carve away Persia? Greece is. Because God uses in his providence the kingdoms of the earth to bring about his will, sometimes one kingdom upon another. 
God judges nations even within uh, temporal times. But for a Christian, secondly, when we think about temporal judgment, does God judge us in this life? Are there things that we should be concerned about in, with God's judgment for us now? And I say, yes, there are a number of them. Number one is sins of the flesh. Of course God judges us for sins of the flesh. And so in 1 Corinthians 9.27, for example, Paul, the apostle, says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Now, I know that in the original language, that's severe language. That, Paul is saying, I treat my body cruelly. I mean, I demand of it certain things. And he says, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I would be disqualified. God would say to me, because of the way you have acted in your flesh, I can't use you. Judged by God for the sins of our flesh. And we know that that is true. We, I said in this morning's message, you can't escape this battle. You can't escape this war. Uh, people like to. On the one hand, people like to say, there is no sin. On the other hand, people like to say, well, I live above sin. <laughs> and neither one is realistic. It's a battle. We're in it from now to death. Secondly, there are those sins of motivation. When our motivation is wrong, 1 John 3.15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I mean, if we hate one another, God sees us as killing one another, chewing away at one another. And we have to be careful about that motivation. Or there's that motivation about uh, covetousness, which is idolatry, Ephesians 5.5 5 says. And our covetousness about things of this world, what we want from everybody else, what we would rather have, what you have and I don't, so I want, and all of this kind of thing. Those kind of motivations God hates and God sees even as idolatry. There are the sins against God's word. You remember Hebrews 4? For the word of God is quick or living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And when the word of God tells us to walk a certain way and we violate that and sin against the word of God, it is a sharp two-edged sword and God sees it. There, there are sins against his will. James speaks about that in chapter 4, verse 14 and, so, and, and following. What is your life? It's a vapor that appeareth for a little time and vanishes away. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, James says, to him it's sin. You know what God's will is in your life for many things. For one, the Bible says, so, says much of what God's will is. And when God gives you his will, you don't violate that. That's a sin that will bring judgment in your life. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, well, uh, uh, sins against the brethren. Uh, God doesn't like this at all. And, and in uh, Romans 14.10, 
Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand at the judgment seat of Christ. God says, for, for the way you treat your brother or sister in Christ, I will remember that at the Bema seat of Christ. And so some things in our life. And you know, there's an indication in the book of, of Revelation that God sometimes judges whole churches. You remember those seven churches and what God said about them. In, uh, to the Ephesians, he said, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And so a church can lose the blessing of God, and a church can be judged by God for what they are. So the point is that in these things called temporal judgments that happen in this life, we as believers have a lot to be accountable for. Now, how does God do it? How does God bring such judgment? Well, first of all, by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. I put those together because one is the same as the other. The Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God. When the Word of God is brought to your heart, it's by the Holy Spirit. God judges you that way. And aren't you glad? Would you have it any other way? Don't, don't you sit down and read the Word of God so that it corrects you? so that you see things in it that says, hey, this is the way, walk ye in it. Oh, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto according to thy word. And so conscience goes along with this. God has given you a conscience. And that conscience, when, when born again and, and moved by the Holy Spirit, trained by the word of God, that conscience becomes an alarm inside you. It, it becomes a thermometer inside you. It, it tells you when there's right and wrong. And a conscience is a good thing in that way. God, God judges us by providence sometimes. Uh, I think I, I said this in this morning's class, you know, you, you uh, are not acting properly as a Christian and some non-Christian walks up to you and says, and you call yourself a Christian? <laughs> God brought judgment on you by his providence from somebody who doesn't even know the Lord. He can bring this judgment upon you in quick and, and many ways. And sometimes by the authorities we live under. We live under governmental authorities. We live under uh, laws that have to be obeyed, and God can correct us with those laws. Or we live under authorities from our parents to our teachers to our uh, spiritual leaders to uh, even friends that all of those things can be brought into our life and correct us and judge us, and rightfully so. So temporal judgment is in this life. Secondly, there is final judgment, and that, of course, is beyond time and space. Uh, in the final judgment, now we move to the thought of there's coming a time when God's going to judge all things and make all things right and give a final word about all things. And so four things here. Number one, uh, there is the judgment on sin but this is where I want to refer back to the cross. God judged our sin on the cross by placing it upon Jesus Christ and then having him die as our sacrifice for our sins so that when we die and face God, 
The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, has cleansed us and is cleansing us and always will cleanse us from all sin so that we don't have to fear our past sin when we stand before God. Isn't that a great thing? Let me, let me read to you uh, an, an older writer, older, actually he would have been still in our lifetime, uh, Herman Hoyt, who wrote a book called The End Times. He said the cross involved a threefold judgment. One, a judgment of sin by imputation to Christ, Romans 8, of believers by identification with Christ. You identify with him, your sin is judged. And then of the world and its prince, meaning Satan, uh, by implication. Therefore, sin is taken away, the world and Satan are completely doomed, and the believer is no longer under condemnation. The cross thus stands as the supreme exhibition and harbinger of all final judgment, for it reveals the supreme uh, or, or reveals the righteous judgment of God, and it separates men into one of two classes, saved and lost. That's the cross, and praise the Lord for the cross. Secondly, there's coming a judgment of Satan and angels, of course. You know this. God uh, will judge Satan. As a matter of fact, we kind of know how he does it. But do you remember that Matthew 25, 41 says, Then shall the, he say unto them on the left, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The lake of fire was originally prepared for Satan because of his rebellion and all of those angels that fell with him and became what we call demons. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. Satan was in heaven uh, as, as the archangel of God, and he was cast down to the air, so to speak. That is, he's the prince and power of the air. And in the tribulation period, he will be cast from the air to the earth and that will bring great uh, 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 tribulation upon the earth. And at the end of that, he's going to be chained for a thousand years and cast from the earth into a bottomless pit. And after the thousand years, he's going to be cast from the bottomless pit into the lake of fire forever and ever. God's judgment upon Satan and the angels just goes lower and lower and lower and lower until he's gone for good. So that, that judgment is coming. You know that God will judge the lost. We call it the great white throne judgment of God, Revelation chapter 20. But in Psalm 19, verse 17, it simply says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. Psalm 9, 17. So God will judge the lost people. There's no getting around it. No one who's refused the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior can bypass this judgment. They can say, I don't believe in it. They can say, I don't think that will happen. It won't matter. God has said it, and it will happen. And then, of course, we know that God, and this is interesting, will judge the saved, and I'm talking about after this life. And how will that happen? How will he, how will he judge the saved people on this earth? Well, he will judge them by the Bema Seed of Christ, won't he? And we have to stop and think about this for a few minutes. The Bema Seed of Christ, the Judgment Seed of Christ, if you will. This is mentioned by name twice uh, in the Scripture. In Romans 14.10, Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? We shall all stand before the Judgment Seat of Christ. 
And then in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So there's still a judgment coming for us in this sense. Now, some Christians even don't like this and think, oh, it can't be that God would still judge us. So let me say a few things. Number one, it is not a judgment against our sin. That is, the sin that would take us to hell. The sin that would take us to hell, what we inherited from Adam, has been judged on the cross, and the Bema Seat has nothing to do with our salvation. As a matter of fact, we're, the Bema Seat takes place in heaven, <laughs> so we're already there, and that's a great thing. But remember, too, that this judgment, it, the what of it is, is reward or loss of reward. You have rewards coming as a believer in the next life. And those, those uh, rewards are based on things that you've done in this life in your body, that is, in, while you're still in your flesh. And so some will remain and some will be burned up by fire. And then there will be crowns and robes given based on what's left. Well, that's a good thing. We'll see in a minute. When does it happen? It happens right after the rapture. And I pointed out before in our study of Revelation that it's in Revelation chapter 4. The rapture is pictured in chapter 4, verse 1. And before that chapter is done, here are the believers in heaven casting their crowns at the feet of Christ. It must happen right away in our glorified bodies, standing in heaven before our Lord Jesus Christ, and there... Uh, we will be evaluated for how we ran the race. And what is the basis for it? Good works. It, it, this verse plainly says in 2 Corinthians that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. There are just some things, folks, that are worthless. And you and I have done those, and they're worthless. And those things will not uh, receive reward for. Uh, as a matter of fact, they will be wood, hay, and stubble and will be burned up. Other things are valuable to God. I'm speaking about our work as a believer. These things we ought to do, and, and they will remain as gold, silver, and precious stone, and there will be reward for those things. And what is the result of it? In a very real way, it's when we rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom for a thousand years. Dr. McCune, again, if I can, uh, he, he's got a great section in his third volume on, on sanctification, but also on judgment at the end. Of, and he says this, the crowns of believers may be literal. And they, I mean, we, we get these crowns. And of course, they are di they're not diadems, they're wreaths. But he says, they may also signify something far greater. It is virtually inconceivable that the reward for a life of sacrificial service and faithful obedience to God would be a few pounds of metal. <laughs> of course, he knows that they're wreaths. The crowns represent varying degrees of blessedness or position in God's kingdom. He goes on to explain 
that uh, in some passages of Scripture, it even indicates that how you rule will be evaluated by how you did with the pounds and the talents that were given you. This man had one, he multiplied it to ten. Be thou over ten cities. This man had, had one, he multiplied it to five, be over five cities. This man had one and did nothing with it, and he said, thou wicked servant. You did nothing with what I gave you? And so there's indication that uh, even the, the way that we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years will be based on how we're running this race in this life. The last step of our sanctification when we get to heaven is to be like Christ and to live with him forever. I kind of look at the Bema Seat of Christ as the final, the, the, the final sanctification from this life. Just as we go through this life and God is slowly making us better, filing us off, whittling us down, making us right so that we will live with him, the last thing he's going to do is bring us to the Bema seat of Christ and burn away all the dross and leave the gold, silver, and precious stone so that we go into heaven like that. I mean, that's kind of the way I picture it. And I think, folks, we will be very glad for it. I know we will. We're looking forward to it. Get rid of that old stuff and be correct about things. Now, I have one, one other section here that uh, I, I left a large space for on the bulletin because I have seven things. I'm going to give them to you quickly with verses, and you can write them down. Notice I call this self-judgment. Now, in light of everything that we've said so far, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do as a believer? Well, I've got seven things. These, we, these I call self-judgments in this world so that judgment is a good thing to you and you can apply it to your life. Number one, judgment on, I'm, I'm going to say my each time personally, on my mental life, how I think, my thoughts and my motivations. And the first expression of that, I think, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3, you'll remember these. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ." bringing into captivity every thought. We judge those thoughts, those thoughts that come into your mind that are not right. Immediately you judge them, you cast them down, so to speak. I don't want to think like that. I don't want that thought in my mind. And then he says, having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. I'm going to bring vengeance upon the wrong thinking in my mind, judging our own thoughts is something we should do. Secondly, judgment upon my physical life. I've already talked about this briefly, and as a matter of fact, I use this same verse, 1 Corinthians 9.27, where Paul says, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. I have a physical life to live, and this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and yet this body has to be controlled. 
Now you have, as a believer, an old nature called the flesh, meaning that old nature you got from Adam, but you have a new nature that you got from the Holy Spirit of God. And so you have a tug-of-war going on inside you. You know this. And the tug-of-war is over this body. It's not that the, the flesh itself and the bones is some kind of evil like a Gnostic view would be, but rather this is where I live, and this body has all kinds of what the New Testament calls members. From my eyes to my mouth uh, to all the members in this body, and that old nature pulling it this way and that new nature pulling it this way. That's the war that's going on. And I have to judge those things. I have to say, no, I will not do that. No, we will not go there. No, I will not say that. I have to continually judge myself in my physical life so that I'm not a castaway and unusable to God. Thirdly, I have to judge myself in my church life in my church life. And you remember Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. <laughs> You're supposed to provoke me, and you do a lot. And I'm supposed to provoke you, and I hope I do a lot. Provoking. So that you look at yourself and say, ah, i got to change that. We bring judgment upon it uh, in our church life, and that is a good thing. And then he goes on, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We're together here tonight provoking one another. <laughs> We're here encouraging one another. We're here to, to say, let's walk together with God. Let, let's be believers. Let's be a body of Christ that shines a light in this world. And we do it 24-7. We do it through prayer requests. We do it through remembering one another. We do it through fellowshipping and, and visiting with one another and so forth. There's a judgment that comes uh, even in our church life. And I would say, folks, that church life in the 21st century is extremely anemic. That the, that the use for a local church has just become a big concert. It's just become a big thing that you go and enjoy for an hour and you forget about it for the rest of the week until the next time you come for an hour. That doesn't accomplish what Hebrews 10 says we're supposed to accomplish for one another. It may not be the most fun thing all the time. It may not be the most exciting thing going on in town, but it is the most profitable thing. And then number four, I have to judge my devotional life. We all should have a devotional life. And so I use here, and I guess there, would be, there would be, could be many, Colossians chapter 3, 16 and 17. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The word of Christ needs to dwell in me richly. And it can't do that if I'm not reading it. It can't do that if I don't have a place to do it. And I could add to this prayer life, of course, I mean by devotional life, all of those things that we need 
fellowship with God and reading his word and praying. And folks, if it's not there, find a place for it. It's like when your wife goes to the antique store and buys something and brings it home and you look at it and scratch your head and she says, find a place for it. <laughs> find, find a place for this in your life. You need to judge yourself about this. You need to say, I need to read God's word. I need to get on my knees today and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I need food for tomorrow for what I have to do tomorrow. Judge yourself about this and do it. Fifthly, my evangelistic life. I have to judge my evangelistic life. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17, Paul says to the church, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. If I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, there's still a dispensation of the gospel committed to me. That was the key verse in Scotland in the old days after John Knox and what they call the Covenanters when England persecuted them and put them to death by not be, uh, following the Roman Catholicism of Mary. And so they went to death saying, no, we have to preach the gospel. And this was their key verse. And thousands upon thousands in Scotland were put to death by saying, we will not stop preaching the grace of God. So my evangelistic life. I have a great commission, and so do you. I have Acts 1-8 in my Bible, and so do you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the wor world. F uh, sixthly, the judgment on my family life. Family is the basis for our society. Family is important. And so many verses here also, but Colossians 3, 18 through 21 is one of those. Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to, uh, to anger, lest they be discouraged. So I have a judgment to make about my family life and how it's going and how my part in it is doing. And then number seven, uh, lastly, on my life's life. <laughs> my life's life. The same word twice. Life's life. And that is, God, make my life what you want it to be. Is my life usable to you? Am I a steward that can work in your uh, shop? Am I a shepherd that can work in your field? Can I harvest in your field? And Psalm 90, verse 17, at the very end of that psalm we've already referred to, Moses' psalm, he, he ends it by saying, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Praying to God as a group, we're saying, Lord, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Here's the work of our hands. 
Here's my life. This is what I do. Lord, establish this. So we take account of our life and say, what am I doing for God in my life? I want to end with uh, a quote again from, remember I, I talked to you about Richard Baxter, the old Puritan writer who wrote an old book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest? And in it, he used the word soliloquy. A soliloquy is a little speech you do. Uh, but in this case, by speech, he means to yourself. Let me read it again from Richard Baxter. By soliloquy, or a pleading the case with thyself, thou must in thy meditation quicken thine own heart. Enter into a serious debate with it. Plead with it in the most moving and effectual language. Urge it with the most powerful and weighty arguments. It is what holy men of God have practiced in all ages. David said, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? He gave a lecture to himself, a little soliloquy. It is a good, or, or it is preaching to oneself as every good master or father or a um, family is a good preacher to his own family, so every good Christian is a good preacher to his own soul. Lecture yourself and judge yourself in this way. Now, I, I, for one, folks, desire the judgment of God, and I hope you do too. I'm not afraid of the judgment of God. I know my sins have been covered in the blood of Christ, but I desire him, his correction. I desire his direction. I, I desire to be like Christ. He judged my sin at the cross, but my present life, I want to be corrected in it. I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to be unusable. And my future life, I will be like, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he does what? He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. I want that. So let me end with Psalm 17, 15, and write that reference down. Uh, for David says it like this, Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. We have no greater goal in our whole existence than awake someday in his likeness. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And God will judge us all the way through and bring us to that point and make us like his son. What a great thing that is. We ought to desire it at every step. Okay, stand with me now if you will. And let's stand and let's go to the Lord in prayer and talk to him about this a little bit. Father, thank you for uh, reminding us of your judgments. And thank you, Father, for reminding us that even in this life, we have much judging to do of ourselves and we welcome your judgment in our life in all ways. May, may we be glad about it. May we be glad when our faults are corrected. May we be glad when we're more like you. May we be glad when the, when the sin that easily besets us is cast away. And then, Father, we look forward to that time, even at the Bema Seat of Christ, when all will be made right, when all of our life will be straightened out, when we will receive just reward and live eternally with you, oh, Father, we long for that time. We also remember, Father, that you will judge this world and you will judge those who don't know Christ as Savior, some of our loved ones. 
and our friends and our families and others. Oh, Father, help us to look at our responsibility of evangelism and holy living. And may we, Father, have an effect on them and perhaps even guide them to faith in Christ. So, Father, uh, remind us of these things. Make us better because of what we've heard and read in your word tonight. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. John's going to